Welcome to the Something Forum by Echo & Co, a podcast where we talk about digital and organizational transformation, innovation, and nonprofits, and hope you learn something along the way. For this series, we welcome guest Stephen Fee, Vice President of Communications at Enterprise Community Partners. He will talk to us about his career journey from journalism to nonprofits, his work now, and the housing crisis in the United States. We also talk about ambition, vulnerability, and finding people who will help you grow. I'm your host, Andy Vanderland. Stephen. Um, thanks for joining us on the Something Forum. You're the VP of Communications with Enterprise Community Partners. We're glad to have you. That's great to be here, Andy. We're on to our third episode. We're going to talk about why can't we just. In our last piece, we heard why can't we just be viral, um, which is awesome. I love that question. <laughs> My favorite question. Um, <laughs> what else what other things do you get as communications guru maybe not even just within your organization but among colleagues or friends why can't we just get a third dog i have three uh so you know i'm pro three dogs but yeah what a cr cringy or favorite kind of like hard to answer why can't we just questions do you get yeah why can't we just be above the fold a1 new york times why can't <laughs> yeah. we just be on msnbc every night why can't we just have the stage at south by southwest i don't get those questions explicitly mm -hmm. but i do <laughs> get a question of why can't we just be bigger why mm -hmm. can't we just have the absolute biggest platform and the absolute loudest microphone mm -hmm. and i love it i love that question because it shows ambition it shows that you think your issue is the most important thing in the world because if you don't yeah. feel that way how are you going to make other people feel that way and for the people in organizations that i've worked for and again i'm a bit of a mercenary right like i've done so many different things and worked for so many different types of organizations but what i really love is meeting the people who are just in this for life right or maybe just in it for now but it give you the feeling that boy, this person has dedicated their professional life to, in my case at Enterprise, creating an affordable home for the millions of Americans without one. And that doesn't mean it's not annoying <laughs> when I get asked the question, why are yeah. we on the biggest stage or on the front page of the newspaper? And I think what often our answer is in communications is it has to be stepwise. You've got mm. to take this, you, you, you crawl before you walk, you walk before you run. And mm. that's not to say that there aren't people here who are already running. They are sprinting, <laughs> they are marathon, whatever athletic reference you want me to make here, I'm not an athlete. Um, but sometimes you really have to nurture and grow to really start getting the attention and the voice and the platform that your organization and your, your people so richly deserve. When I was at Physicians for Human Rights, there was a young researcher at the time, I'll use her name, Elise Baker, who was really just a brilliant young desk researcher doing a lot of the hard work of, yeah. you know, um, of some of this work that we were doing on, on war crimes and attacks on healthcare and war zones. And she wouldn't always do interviews. She'd pass to her boss or the research director, someone else. And I forget exactly what the circumstances were, but we had an opportunity to go on CNN, right? And Elise was there. 
Elisa's ready. And I felt like, let's do this, right? Yeah. You know, she she knows her stuff. She's an expert. She's done press interviews. She knows how to navigate. Throwing someone onto CNN is scary. It's international. <laughs> it's a camera. It's lights. It's all the things. Yeah. But at some point, you have to make that leap. And the prep we did, you know, we went over to the, the time was the Time Warner Center since CNN has since moved. Um, it, I, and I believe it was with the Christian Amanpour's program. And it was a remote interview. And if you've ever done TV, a remote interview means you're basically just sitting in a tiny little studio, a camera right in front of you. Usually it's remote <laughs> control. There's not even another person there. And if you're Come lucky, on. they can show you the anchor, the person who's talking to you. Sometimes you don't even see them. You just have an <laughs> IFB. You have a line in your ear where someone's talking to you. And Elise killed it. Oh, good. Right? She told the story. She made her, she hit her talking point. She she balanced the seriousness with the with the academic uh, nature, the the heartstrings with the with the data, all the things that you want to see in a great message. She just hit it all, and to watch someone do that and grow into that is the most rewarding thing I think we can do in this business. And so, to me, when people say I want to be on A one in the New York Times tomorrow, I say, well, let's let's get you a couple op eds out there first. Let's figure yeah. out what's our what's our pathway there. Why are we doing it? Of course. But once we establish that, let's figure out how we're going to get there. And it can take a lot of time. But mm -hmm. like I said, it's a, it's an annoying question at first. But ultimately, it shows the ambition that you need to do this work. Yeah, I love the like stepping stones approach to it. Uh, just like maybe you don't want to go straight from just emails into, you know, interviewing with CNN. There might be a couple of things you want to do in between. <laughs> Some steps on the way. I'll tell you, I was a reporter and I, for a brief period of time, did a ton of live shots, right? That's where you just are live on camera. You're talking to an anchor, someone in a studio. And I really thought the first time... And, and the first time I did one, it was in this ratty studio, you know, the camera was jerry-rigged. I couldn't see anything. <laughs> My audio was cutting in and out. And I thought I was going to pass out. I thought I was going to fall off the stool. I did it hundreds of times and I was still nervous. Really? So the idea that someone's going to walk in and be perfect the first time, it just never happens. I've never mm. encountered it. And, and, yeah. and by the way, I think the misconception is that some people are good at it and some people aren't. Some people can do a broadcast interview and some people can't. That's not true. It's, it's a skill. It is learned. It can be taught. And I think that that's really um, powerful for people to hear because yeah. they think I can do that. And, and I really believe that. I think anyone can do it. Had to practice your news anchor voice, which I don't know why that means it's deeper, but. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I never had it. <laughs> What are some of the skills people could practice? Like if they're listening to this, like, I want to be on CNN, but I've only sent emails. Do you have like a recommendation for a first two steps? I mean, look, if you want to be a public spokesperson for your cause, think and write. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. look, especially if you're thinking about getting booked on cable news, you know, the cable news business is known quantities, right? If I'm a booking producer at CNN, MSNBC, Fox, like I want to call the people who I know what they're going to say. I know how they're going to mm -hmm. act. I know exactly what to expect. They are very risk averse. Nobody wants the newbie on their show, <laughs> right? But so that means to break in is, is hard. But I think yeah. that 
for the people that I really think have done this well, they're prolific writers. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you're a super talented writer. You're just writing a lot. And you're, 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 you're publicly thinking. You're publicly offering new ideas. And I think that's the way you start to break into the cycle. And, mm. and the rest kind of comes. You know, if it's a radio interview, it's a podcast, if it's a local news hit, you know, but really getting your message out the door and, and trying new things. And, you know, my rule of thumb with like a good op-ed is like it needs to be newsworthy. Uh, it needs to offer a, new, a brand new argument or it needs to be counterintuitive. And I think that's true as when you're trying to be a public face or a public intellectual around a cause. I think that's really important. So yeah, I think it's just it's it's writing and putting it out there on Substack, on Twitter, wherever you're yeah. at. Um, it's super important, and that's how you build. I love the framing of publicly thinking because thinking to me takes some of the pressure off, right? Because it's just like I'm processing, and these are thoughts that I have, and I'm sharing them, and I'm gonna try to be thoughtful considerate about what I'm sharing. Um, but it doesn't, it's not some like end of life tome on my take on humanity. It's like, I'm thinking, I'm working through it. It yeah. takes some of the pressure off of it having to be perfect and totally well thought. And out. what's your, you know, and I think part of the problem is you know, we're all so overexposed. We all hear the same arguments mm. over and over again. We see the same mm. people on TV. We see yeah. the same tropes and dialogues happening. And to me, it's the people who are willing to kind of put themselves out there mm, and say something yeah. that maybe isn't that popular or yeah. is a little bit controversial or counterintuitive, you know, without being a troll, without being a yeah, jerk. Yeah, um, right. But I think, you know, thinking about what is new, what is the thing that you're going to say mm. that other people aren't saying and thinking in ways that are going to further a conversation. And that's why I really, you know, I worked at PEN America, which is both a literary celebration organization and about free expression. And so much about what was hard, but also was really fun about that job was that I worked for this, you know, this person, Suzanne Nossel, who is like the leading thinker in free expression in America right now. I mean, she truly is at the cutting edge and she is fearless, like absolute a hundred percent courage in saying maybe something that's unpopular, but that is based on principle and is based on a feeling that this is right. Because if we shut down this kind of speech, it shuts down all of our speech, right? Mm. And that's a very hard position to take right now, right? Because everyone's watching everything everybody says and everything you say is permanently recorded and out there. And to to take that risk, I think, and you don't have to, I mean, I'm not saying that everyone has to be controversial, everyone has to be risky. But look, there is an element of of putting yourself out there, subjecting yourself to criticism. And that's very Mm -hmm. hard to do. And not everyone wants that. And that's fine. But that's, you know, don't expect to be booked on CNN tomorrow. Um, yeah fair Uh, yeah it's hard especially because you're right it's not only is it there for forever you get canceled so there's no forgive there's not a lot of forgiveness so it's hard to be vulnerable yeah and I think that that's and that's a big you know and that's something I learned a lot again like I said working a lot of different ways you learn a lot I learned a lot from Suzanne Nossel at PEN America who wrote a book called Dare to Speak about free expression and there is a duty of care apologies Mm. matter yeah you shouldn't be sent into exile for the rest of your life uh for making a mistake if you're if you're contrite and you amend and you work to correct we all make big mistakes and that's part of that's again part of free expression right that's part of engaging in a public dialogue you also have to be willing to 
apologize and accept apologies. And, um, and that's, that's not always palatable right Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. And you have to apologize, right? How many, like, I'm sorry you took it that way. That's not an apology. No, no, no. (laughs) What would be your big courageous thing to say right now? (laughs) <laughs> I think that, well, I feel like sometimes when we ask people to be courageous, we're often asking them to say something negative. And that's often where my brain goes, right? It's like, let's attack something. Let's, let's go after something that's sacrosanct or that we shouldn't, we shouldn't malign or criticize. Um, I think that nonprofits face an existential crisis right now. Mm-hmm whether they know it or not, <laughs> whether you've got all the money in the world or you're asked, you're begging for dollars. I think that the space for us has really changed in the last six or seven years. It is more challenging to break through. Fewer people want to listen to us. And I think what's happening is there's a calcification happening with our ability to convince people that maybe they're wrong or we're right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm adopting other people's ideas here, but, um, you know, I think that a lot of our political discourse is reflective of that, where mm-hmm. everyone is sort of retreated into their corner and they're talking into their echo chambers. And I think a lot of nonprofits find themselves doing that every day. They are moderating their language to speak just to their constituency. Mm-hmm. They are consolidating their support, but that consolidation is happening sort of behind their trench a little bit. Again, warfare metaphor is not great, but it's, they come to mind. (laughs) And I think there's a real failure, especially I think among more progressive organizations, that's just where I'm familiar to really find ways of convincing other people. That's not to say that like, we're going to change everybody's minds, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think tomorrow I'm going to get, um, you know, really hard right folks who don't believe the government has a place in housing to support the low-income housing tax credit. I don't think that's going to happen. But I think there's still space for persuasion. I think there's still place yeah. for argument. I think there's a place for winning people over. And that does mean we have to, and this is, again, dodging your question. I think <laughs> it does mean, though, that we have to, we do sometimes have to go outside of our, our box a little bit. And, you know, I think enterprise is interesting. Enterprise, of all the organizations I've ever worked for, enterprise plays in the game of the business world. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we have revenue generating lines of business. Right. We yeah. we talk to investors. We talk to folks on Wall Street. We're also in the community development world and we talk to advocates and allies on the ground. And I mean, that poses special vulnerabilities. But I think it also makes us really unique. I think that we have credibility in ways that mm-hmm. other folks just don't. And I think that if you don't have a plan for how you're going to stretch across some of those barriers, I and mean, that's not a partisan comment. It can be rural urban, it can be yeah. exurb suburb, it can be transracial, it can be across gender identity lines. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're, 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 you're not going to succeed. And I think that that's a real crisis for a lot of organizations within, I, I would say in the, in the more sort of center left to progressive left, um, mm. that we're, we're becoming too closed off. Yeah. That's not that controversial. Everyone else is saying no, that. No, I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I am, my dad calls me bleeding heart liberal. I don't know if I agree, but I'm 
pretty progressive in my points of view. And I see that too, but we like to think of ourselves as above the, the, oh God, I don't know, just sort of like above that, right? Like, oh, we love everybody. We can listen, but we don't. We tend, I'm just including myself in this. We tend to just want, I want everyone to care about animals and everyone else is wrong, right? And I don't want to listen to what the in-between of that is. And um, at, risk of, at risk of taking more time on this, but I think it's important. Please do. Um, yeah. One example of this in my line of work is how we deal with the not in my backyard problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if yeah, you're not familiar sure. with that, that is you have very well-meaning people mm-hmm. who if there is going to be a low-income housing development built in their neighborhood, they say, don't build it here, build it somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. And I think what's often happened within the affordable housing movement, I'm not saying this about everyone, but I think there are voices within our movement who want to shame those people and mm-hmm. say, how dare you? You, mm-hmm. you live in Berkeley, California. You live in New York City. You pretend to be a progressive, and yet here you are shutting out opportunity for other people. Yeah. And I think that's a losing argument. You're not going to shame people into changing their minds. And if you don't actually listen to what their concerns are, you're just going to be talking across each other. So sometimes, Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that there aren't subtexts, you know, very often there are stereotypes at play. There's racism at play. There's classism at play. I'm not saying that. But if someone says, look, I am worried about the strain on my school I'm worried about traffic. I'm worried about infrastructure. I'm worried about the tax base. We have to take those arguments at face value and address them head on, right? Yeah. It can't be a distraction, right? If we think that we're going to lose or we think that, you know, we're not going to get anywhere with this. It's just an excuse or just cover for something else. Mm -hmm. Fine. But if we don't at first take people at face value for what they're saying, we're never going to get credibility. They're never going to listen to us. That's a great example. The not in my backyard thing. I mean, I do it. I know I do. Right? Really? Like, it's such a good point. Yeah. I mean, I think another good example is like, you know, for people who own a home in America, they want to see their home value increase, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all, most of us survived the mortgage crisis and, you know, saw home values plummet. And our home yeah. is often our biggest asset for those who own a yep. home. It's what we're going to pass on to our kids or our community or our families. Yeah. At the same time, we know housing prices are out of control and we need right. to moderate housing prices so that more people can have access to opportunity, whether it's a rented home or an owned home. And mm-hmm. so I think those are those are contradictions that we shouldn't be afraid of. We have to sit yeah. with that discomfort. Yeah, that I'm like speechless because that's absolutely my experience, right? I want my, I want my, you know, value, not just my house, but my life to increase and the way that we talk about it right now, and I don't necessarily believe it's just how it's structured. I haven't done the research, but it's zero sum. If my, I want this to increase, and if this other thing increases, my housing costs, my value of my house will go down. And it doesn't necessarily have to be zero sum. Uh, no. So I have some thinking to do about that. <laughs> so look, and I think this is part of our challenge in, in, our, in our field as a communicator. Mm-hmm. I think that... The housing, we talked earlier about why isn't housing at the forefront of the national agenda? Why isn't it every other word in President Biden's State of the Union address? And partly I think it's because our our conception of home is often very narrowly defined as home ownership. Mm-hmm. 
And that's mm -hmm. by design. I mean, basically, since the post-war period in America, our policy objective when it comes to housing has been around enabling home ownership. And that's a mm -hmm. great thing. Owning a home can be fantastic. It's forced saving. Yeah. It's an investment vehicle for families that don't have it. And let's be very clear, on average, a homeowner has 40 times the net worth of a renter. Wow. Homeownership is a great thing for this country, and it has been a great thing for this country. The problem is homeownership has stayed at relatively the same level since the 1960s. And so I think our concern is that if we keep treating a rented home like a stepping stone to homeownership, mm -hmm. we're not going to take seriously the fact that tens of millions of Americans live in rented homes. And we have to make sure those homes are affordable, safe, climate resilient, and provide opportunities for upward mobility. Because not everyone is going to have a chance to own a home. And I think that's just a reality that we have to reckon with. It's yeah. not an either or. It's not saying rentership or home ownership. One is better than the other. It's just saying Americans live very different types of lives. And if we only focus on home ownership, in my view, we do so at the expense of creating a better world for rentership and creating rented homes in America. Mm. Yeah. I'm having all of the feelings right now and I want to go to your Ted talk. Like I want more information. Everyone else is like, I mean, this is the magic ah. of being a communicator, right? Is like our job is to never be an expert. My job <laughs> is to take Great. all the smart things that other people say and yeah. try to figure out how do we consolidate channel them and deliver them to people who need to hear it. Mm -hmm. And so everything I'm saying to you right now is based on people who are so much smarter than I am and deserve all the credit for this, truly. Like the thinking around this is extraordinary. Ah, man, I have learned so much. I have lots of feelings, uh, mostly around curiosity. Like I want to learn more so that I can better understand my role in, you know, this idea of home ownership and how I can be a better part of making affordable housing accessible. And oh gosh, I just, I'm going to have my own crisis. And that's what's so hard for us in communications is to say this issue feels big and it feels like something that, again, enterprise traditionally, we're an intermediary, we deal with mm -hmm. investors, we deal with developers, yeah. we deal with community development organizations. And the question is, is there a role for, for someone like you, Andy? Is there a role for someone like someone listening to this podcast to say, okay, I'm not in this fight. I'm not going to invest money in a real estate fund that preserves affordable homes, but is there a part that I can play here? Yeah. And my, my answer, I don't think we've reached a firm answer to that, but my answer is absolutely. I think it, it exists on the policy level. I think it exists on the, on the argument level and how we change narratives. Um, and, you know, I don't think we're going to build a movement in the streets. I don't think that's the kind of movement that we're going to lead here at Enterprise. Mm -hmm. But I do think we're going to lead a movement of changing people's minds and changing yeah. narratives around housing in America. And again, yeah. that's going to take a long time to do. But that, to me, is, is the ambition. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Something Forum. Tune in next week as we continue our series with guest Stephen Fee. I'm your host, Andy Vanderland. Melissa Huntley is our editor. The music you hear in this episode is Something About Something by Sarah, the instrumentalist. This podcast is produced by Echo & Co, a digital agency sending creativity on a mission.